And uh, so I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles once again to 2 Peter. And we've been working our way through 2 Peter. And we're in the chapter 2 of it. We went through 1 Peter. We're in 2 Peter. And just for a little review, you may remember that Peter wrote this letter to saints who were dispersed. Who for some reason, we know not exactly why, perhaps persecution, perhaps famine in the land. There were famines in that time in the, in the Holy Land of Jerusalem. But they were dispersed throughout Asia. Now Asia was a pagan place at the time. But we have to remember there were at least, I think I counted this morning when I woke up early and thought about the sermon. I think there was ten churches in Asia at the time. There were certainly the seven of the Revelation, right? There were those seven churches and they were in that part of modern day Turkey or we call Asia Minor today. And there were other churches that hadn't been mentioned in those seven. There was uh, Hierapolis, I believe, Troas, um, Colossae. There were other churches that were founded there, and so they weren't without um, a Christian presence in that place. But for some reason, this group of pilgrims, he calls them, and they were literal pilgrims, were all pilgrims and strangers in the earth, but these were literal pilgrims who were put out from their homeland for um, uh, some tumultuous reasons, perhaps, um, perhaps run out by, uh, I think it was Claudius at the time, um, you go back to the book of Acts and you'll see that um, Aquila and Priscilla were kicked out of Rome because of Claudius and his edicts. But he's reminding them of their Christian faith and he's reminding them to hold fast to it. This section is where the Apostle Peter reminds them to get their biblical information from the right sources. And so he, he rails against the false prophets and the false teachers that are plentiful. Not only then, friends, they're plentiful now. And this word is as instructive and as fresh to us today as it ever was. And so I invite you to open with me this morning to 2 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to read from verse 9 down to the end of the chapter, verse 22. There is so much here. I know I'll not do justice to it, but I have picked out some points that I think we ought to put our attention on this morning. And so, from verse 9, the Apostle Peter writes these words. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural, brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and have gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked 
for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great, swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow, having washed, to her wallowing in the mire. Our Father, we thank you for we thank you for this written word, these fearful epitaphs, O Lord. We ask you, Father, to give us wisdom this morning. But most of all, humility, Father, to look into these deep and serious and final subjects, O Lord, of which the Apostle warns even the churches. O Father, in Jesus' name, give us grace to endure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Peter was not at a loss for words in describing just what he thought of those who would falsely represent uh, the gospel of Christ and who would disrupt the peace of civilization. And as we go through this, I think this will be unfolded to you. And so we read from verse 9, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly. He knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Now we talked about this last week. We talked about mainly the first part of this verse. The apostle focuses now on the second part. We know that the Lord knows how to deliver, but he also knows how to reserve the unjust for the day of judgment. And we spoke and we touched on that somewhat last week. In fact, we could say that the apostle Peter elaborates extensively here on the nature of the ungodly. What is it like to be ungodly? What does it look like? Does it feel like and can we recognize it and this apostle is determined that these pilgrims of the diaspora are equipped to discern right from wrong good from evil truth from falsehood and so he sends them up and he arms them he arms them with these words um so he talks extensively on the nature of the ungodly on their effect on the godly How do the ungodly affect the godly? Notice he doesn't just say, God knows how to deliver the godly, but the godly out of temptations. We're always praying, Lord, deliver me. Lord, deliver my father. Deliver my mother. But it's out of temptations to sin. And these are pilgrims who are embroiled in a culture where there's all sorts of uh, factions weighing against them, tempting them to come out of their 
place to come out of even their understanding of Christian morality. And it's easily, we may easily get distorted of right from wrong when we're mixed in so much with the ungodly. Then finally, he speaks on divine retribution and the end that awaits them, that awaits anyone who ends their life without faith in Christ. And these members of society are so evil, they despise and destroy the gifts of God, even the good things of God. And they will inherit what Peter calls the blackness of darkness forever. Those of us who take hell seriously cringe at those words. As we talked about this morning, you know, originally I, I named the sermon, I, I like to give titles to the sermon that come right out of the text itself. I called it Wells Without Water, but as I read through it, and I read through it, and I let it, and I meditated on it, and I let it affect me, I recognized that this is really the subject he's talking about, the finality of turning against Christ and being vocal in your life. Um, to lead others away from him. So the passage from Peter has aroused in us a distinct sense of fulfillment of prophecy in our time. And I know that's true because when people talk to me and give me their comments after the sermons, um, I recognize that they're seeing these things played out before our eyes even now in our time, in our own society. And these things shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't frighten us. We have our faith. We are, by faith, insulated from the dangers of the blackness of darkness forever. So it shouldn't frighten us, at least not with the same fright that the ungodly should have. But if they did have, would probably not remain ungodly. So it shouldn't frighten us, it shouldn't surprise us, but it should open our eyes to the truth, to the veracity of Scripture. In other words, the Apostle Peter warned about these things. He presented them to us as prophetic visions of what people would be like really in all generations, and we shouldn't be surprised when we see that playing out around us. He talks about the nature of those who have gone so far away from Christ that they cannot but express the satanic hatred of all that is good and godly in the world. Friends, the church is under attack. I feel it. I feel it every time I turn on a news station. And with regard to news stations, I would, as I always tell you, vary your news sources. That's my advice, because we are a, we are a, a, a society that is immersed in media of all sorts. And they all have their um, predispositions. And they all have their ways of leading us to see things their way. So I say to you, vary your news sources if you're going to be immersed in them at all. Now rarely have I, rarely have I, or have many preachers waxed political in the Sunday address. That's almost something that we frown upon in the churches. And on these occasions, where I became particularly pointed in my remarks with regard to politics and politicians, it did not go without some criticism. But I accept the criticism. I think such criticism can be warranted, and certainly a preacher and a pastor must guard against certain excesses in this area. I can't get up here and and preach to you the godliness of choosing every candidate that I think is good. I don't think that's a proper use of the pulpit. And that is essentially 
uh, the Puritan and Reformed tradition that we follow. However, as I said, there are those times in, in history where you can't escape it. And you can judge for yourself if this is one of those times. I think that it is. I think s- such cr- criticism is warranted so long as it's not excessive. And I understand that during the week, people have said to me, I'm bombarded by these themes during the week. I hope when I come on Sunday that I don't have to hear the same things. Well, I'm here to tell you, I too want to come on Sunday and be encouraged and be enlightened and be assured that the Lord God is in charge and that he's still able to, to save and defend his bride. But if I'm going to preach expositorily from the epistles of the Bible, when I come to the themes of the blackness of darkness forever, I can't skip over them because I'm tired or tired of hearing about it. I want to assure you today that though the apostles' words are damning and they are harsh regarding the sinful of this world, that we ought not to miss the point of the passage. The passage comes with assurances, friends. He writes that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly, and I think he knows that the Lord knows how to deliver the mail. Because this thing was sent out, and somehow it got to the pilgrims dispersed throughout Asia, we may presume. The Lord does a lot of delivering. We saw last week that it came with examples. The Lord has a great resume of deliverance. Oh, we could go through all of it. Some of the Psalms do. We could talk about the parting of the Red Sea. We could talk about so many things. But what Peter talked about was Noah's surgical removal from the deluge that took the world in his day. One of eight, he said. So he gave us the great example that the Lord knew how to deliver the godly out of temptations. And so he did so. We were reminded of Lot who was sort of siphoned off to safety after the fires of heaven had already begun to fall upon his city. And he was saved out of the tumult. So the apostle assures us that we too will be delivered, even if it takes a surgical deliverance from a burning city. And though we see the wickedness of power-hungry men in our day, though we see our cities burning, our monuments destroyed, we have to remain fixed upon the reality that ours is not a carnal battle. And so a preacher has to thread that needle as well. Ours is not a carnal battle. The Apostle Paul assures us of this. For we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The battles we're really fighting are with spirits. They are spiritual battles. That's why I urge you that this is not a time to wane in your prayer lives. But pray always and gather with us as often as you can for this, and certainly on Sunday mornings. I assure you that I have not forgotten the essential nature of the battle is spiritual. At the same time, however, though the battle is spiritual, the battlefield is in the earth. And this is where it's fought. This is the theater of this war. And the forces of hell that unleash their powers in the heavenlies affect the unwary of this world. But we're not the unwary. 
Due to this apostle's faithful rendering on the nature of evil and of evil people, we're not the unwary of this world. We are the ones who are informed. We're those who have faith. And faith is not physical sight, friends, but it is spiritual sight. In fact, faith is clear-sightedness. I dare say it's the only clear sight a man can have. It's the clearest of sight. It's faith in the words of Scripture that empowers the faithful to see that satanic powers do take root in carnal systems and institutions. And so we should not remain silent about these things. As I said, there's times in history when pastors and preachers have to speak to the specifics of the moment and to present them in a biblical light. And sometimes when I, when I take this route in a Sunday sermon, I like to point out two great, well, let's say three great tumultuous times in history. One was the Reformation. That was a spiritual battle that was certainly played out in the Western world of uh, Europe and um, even the New World at the time. This being the new world, not the real new world. The old new world. Certainly during uh, the Reformation, it was such a time when religion and politics intersected and preachers and commentators had to speak on these things and clarify the thoughts of the, of the people. Certainly our revolutionary period was one of those times. You know, the, the Anglican Church, the Church of England, was, was big in the land and the pastors literally worked for the crown. But yet some of them had to take sides with the colonists. They had to clarify their reasons for doing so. And they had to justify them in a biblical light. So certainly pastors had to preach what we would call political sermons. And certainly that happened during the Civil War as well. So during our nation's revolutionary period, the pastors of the local churches had to eventually take sides. So consider the preacher congressman John Witherspoon, a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He preached a sermon on the wrath of man, which is a a theme from Psalm 76. He preached it first at Princeton in his university, and then later in Philadelphia. In 1776, Pastor Witherspoon preached these words, and so I've recorded them for you. And so he writes this to his congregation, you are all my witnesses that this is the first time of my introducing any political subject into the pulpit. He too was very careful about this kind of thing. He said, at this season, however, it's not only lawful, but necessary, and I'll willingly embrace the opportunity of declaring my opinion without any hesitation that the cause in which America is now in arms is the cause of justice, of liberty, and of human nature. And I would imagine that that clarified for many of his congregants not only their position, but his position as their pastor. So far as we have hitherto proceeded, he says, I'm satisfied that this confederacy of the colonies has not been the effect of pride, resentment, or sedition, but of a deep and general conviction that our civil and religious liberties, and consequently in a great measure, the temporal and eternal happiness of us and our posterity depend on this issue. This isn't just a fleeting political issue. He's telling us our children's salvation 
and our grandchildren's salvation depends on us seeing it clearly and speaking clearly about it while we still have the freedoms to do so. You shall not, my brethren, he goes on, hear from me in the pulpit what you have never heard from me in conversation. You know, we're a church that's very much like that. Um, we gather together uh, after the service. We were gathered together. How many men were last week at, at James's house? We're sitting around the table. We're talking about all these current issues, all these things, and, and sharing opinions in them. And Witherspoon was no different. He had that, that, that puritanical zeal that a pastor meant he was a shepherd of the people. And he, he wasn't above them. He sat with them and spoke with them and gave his opinions in private. And he's saying, if I'll do it in private, then I ought to have the courage to do it in public. And so he says, whatever you heard from me in conversation, you're hearing from me in the pulpit. And he says, I mean railing at the king or even his ministers or parliament. So when he does this privately, he'd also do it publicly when he felt it was his biblical duty to do so. And this was one of those times. He went on to say, whoever is an avowed enemy to God, I scruple not to call him an enemy to his country. I do not wish you to oppose, I do not wish rather to oppose anybody's religion, but everybody's wickedness. Friends, I don't care what your religion is. I can be very libertarian on that point. But you can only go so far in disrupting society and not be called out as a, as a wicked disruptor. And this is what he's saying here. He's saying, you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to worship like, like me. I'm not calling you out for your religion. I'm calling you out for your wickedness. It's therefore your duty in this important and critical season, he writes, to exert yourself, everyone in his proper sphere, to stem the tide of prevailing vice, to promote the knowledge of God, the reverence of his name and worship, and obedience to his laws. Friends, I've got to tell you, this sermon is some, you think mine along? This is some 25 pages long. I would have loved to come in and read the sermon to you just for historical reasons. But um, that'll be for another time. In another era, say, oh, 150 years or so be, before this time, um, our Reformation leaders were not surprised to see some of these same evils expressed in their words as we're seeing in ours. Certainly Calvin in his commentaries. I went to Calvin's commentaries to see what was his thinking on these subjects, and this is what he wrote. He wrote, we now, and this is on this very verse that we're, that we're reading, verse 9. We now perceive what the apostle meant in this second clause. The first clause was the Lord knows how to deliver the godly. The second clause was he knows how to reserve the unjust for punishment. So we speak about the second clause. He says, even that they of whom he speaks were frantic men, lovers of tumults and confusion, for no one can introduce anarchy into the world without introducing disorder. Boy, does that not sound like it was tailor-made for our times. Friends, men don't change all that much. I remember, I think it was the last Rocky movie. And a pastor friend of mine said, did you see the last Rocky movie? And I said, no. He said he had a, a, really, um, a really good theological statement. You know, Rocky Balboa, the great theologian. And um, I think it was his son said, said to Rocky, he said, Dad, this is different times. People have changed. He goes, no, he goes, the clothes have changed. The people are just the same. 
something to that effect. And that's basically what I'm saying to you here. No, we don't dress like, like Calvin dressed with one of those hats with the, the earmuffs. But, um, but the people are still the same. They still bring about anarchy and disorder. And they do so publicly and in the, in the streets. And he writes, These with bold affront, affrontery vomited forth reproaches against magistrates that they might take away every respect for public rights. When he says magistrates, he means judges and courts. Friends, judges and courts may not agree with us, but they are, in essence, good things. They are gifts of God, granted by God for our protection. And so he's, even though he's a Protestant and he's protesting uh, some of the edicts of Rome, in fact, I would say Calvin protested all of the edicts of Rome, he's talking, he's talking here about anarchy and disorder and a disrespect for the magistrates, and if I may put it this way, those who were put in society to protect us. He says, this was openly to fight against God by their blasphemies, he writes. They are, there are also many turbulent men of this sort at the present day who proudly declare that the power of the sword is heathen and unlawful. And he's talking about the police department of his time. If you go to Romans Chapter 13, you'll see they do, the, the magistrate, the executor of justice, does not wear the sword for nothing, and that's the reference he's making here. And they furiously attempt to subvert all government. And who does he attribute it to? He goes back to the spiritual battle. Such furies Satan excites in order to, to disturb and prevent the progress of the gospel. But the Lord hath dealt favorably with us. For he hath not only warned us to beware of this deadly poison, but has also by this ancient example fortified us against this scandal. Friends, it's better to know than not know. It's better to be warned than to not be warned. So the apostle tells us the true unleashed nature of the ungodly of this world. He calls them presumptuous. He calls them self-willed. Those are almost understatements. He compares them, which is not an understatement, to natural brute beasts. He says that they, like mad dogs, are beyond help and made to be caught and destroyed. And the implication is that the Lord is in the business of doing this. He writes, he knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. He says of people who have progressed so far in their evil intentions that they can no longer see anything good and so must fulfill their own personal lusts and grudges against good thoughts and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. You know, I wonder if you remember how the enemies of Nehemiah, remember the book of Nehemiah? Nehemiah came into Jerusalem to rebuild the wall under edict of the king, he allowed it to come back. The evil that Eliashib, that's the high priest, had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore I threw all the household goods of, Tob- of Tobiah out, in, out of the room. And then as he goes on, he said he had to cleanse the room from the evil that he had uh, brought there. It's a biblical principle that though the tares do grow alongside the wheat, 
that there are times when the tares must be thinned to protect the crop, and it seems to me we live in one of those times, and maybe the Lord is about doing the thinning. Friends, some people only know how to destroy. They do not build anything. They're, in fact, incapable of building. Tearing down, burning down becomes their specialty. The political applications of the moment have not escaped the notice of some of you. People brought this up to me last week. You've said to me after last week's service that I didn't, that I, um, I did not speak directly to such things, but they were the nevertheless obvious. And the passage from Peter does seem to speak directly to the nature of the movements in our country that we're seeing in our cities. We see and hear of tumultuous confrontations between law and disorder. And the forces of disorder and anarchy are hard at work to dismantle every respect of law and order that currently exists. We're even seeing older people and politicians buying into anarchy as though such a course could actually provide a way forward. Which is amazing to me. Have you ever noticed that those forces of our society that are are intent on burning down our national heritage, historical monuments, the safety and security of civilians, of their homes and their properties are quite effective at burning and destroying, but they have no real program or even ability to rebuild or to repair all the things they would tear down? This is the profile the Apostle's giving us of the unrestrained evil we see presently in our society. How else shall we make application of verse 19 where we read, While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him he is also brought into bondage. Friends, how will the voices of liberty today provide liberty? How shall they secure what our founders called the blessings of liberty? A liberty we're enjoying at this moment and practicing at this moment. I've been amazed at the vociferous demands to defund or abolish police have actually taken root in what were otherwise intelligent people. People are taking this serious. There's a widespread call for government-enforced socialism, a system that has been demonstrable failure in every nation where it was tried. But I want to show you that this battle that is spiritual takes root in in the carnal, in the real, in the physical institutions of our world. It's as if some of our elder statesmen, friends, people older than me, who spent a lifetime fighting a cold war against communism, are so forgetful of the fruits of communism. The first thing that goes is human incentive to produce. The next stage is vast shortages of essential goods. Then comes rationing of goods, and with rationing there has to be government enforcement of rationing. Then comes the black market for coveted items. And just like we're seeing now in our nation, those who impose restrictions are not themselves subject to restrictions. These are all the earmarks of those systems that we fought for my whole lifetime and I thought we were fighting against. Some of you were in Vietnam. Why did we go there? Because a communist country was overcoming them. That's why. We thought at the time it was our duty to go there.
So, those who decry making a profit are themselves making a profit. It's as if certain politicians made a deal with the devil to get elected and so now have to pay him for the service he provided. Friends, let's not forget the father of communism. He went straight to the point, straight to the strategy in the battle. And so Karl Marx wrote that religion is the problem. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature. I remember studying this in college. It was, it was my major, in fact. Soviet philosophy. There isn't even a Soviet anymore. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature. It's the heart of a heartless world, the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Friends, that hasn't changed. I've always maintained, friends, that atheism is a form of insanity, and I maintain it today. I'll also say that we should expect that the ungodly of this world are in the throes of insanity. You know, we're often taught that our faith is quaint. It's not powerful. It doesn't really discern anything. It's a blind, we're, we have what they like to call blind faith. And our, what our faith does is makes us, makes us easily led by our leaders because we don't because we've sort of given up on our own native intelligence and sense of reasoning, and we've taken this faith. Friends, I'm here to tell you that faith does not decrease mental acuity. It improves it exponentially. People of faith are the only ones that can see through and discern the real good and evil and where they come from and who the leaders are. And this is what Peter is is warning these pilgrims about. Friends, atheism is a form of insanity. Make no mistake. You've got to remember that human reason is a gift of God. And like all the gifts of God, when they are misused, he can take them back. I told you last week, I've said many times, he can come in and he can say, that country I gave you, that you didn't use properly, I'm taking that back. Those freedoms that I granted you, I'm taking them back. I can take back, because I'm God, I can take back... Those homes I gave you, those families. Go back and read the book of Job and you'll see that God can do these things when it suits him. He can come in and say, that fine car in the driveway, I'm taking that. Those fine clothes, those are mine too. And while I'm at it, that breath in your body is mine as well and I'm taking that back. God owns it all. But those of us who have faith can see it all. And the apostle is warning us to see things clearly. The evils Peter describes, he puts forth as prophecies. These things will come about and they may be expected to be seen throughout the generations of man. We see these evils unfold in our time, even before our eyes. But the teachings of Peter warned the faithful of other generations as well. Friends, this was the first century. This was the height of the Roman Empire. Peter had already seen the the outcry against Christians and the persecution against them. And was eventually, according to legend, a victim of those things, as was Paul. He'd already seen the extent they would go to, to snuff out the one true God who wouldn't be part of their pantheon. He stood above the pantheon. He didn't live in temples made with hands, he said, as as the gods of Rome did. Now the evils Peter describes 
He puts forth his prophecies. Friends, we built our church. We built our church from the ground up. Our religious schools and places of worship will not sustain themselves, however. If we do not support them with our own money and with our own lives, we'll not have them for long. And with regard to such things, we've seen some disappear and some remain. Our church, however, flourishes. And I think the church in America still flourishes, with some few exceptions. And I would warn with the Apostle Peter that if we do not take an active role in standing for God-given rights of worshipers, we will forfeit them. And I'm heartened to see so many churches around the country stand against the forces that intrude upon our freedoms. Now, as I've said, I've been reserved in my statements concerning political opponents. I've tried, and I believe it's our duty to try, to treat political opponents as people of dignity who have arrived at conclusions other than their own. But when these same agencies gather together to close down public worship, they have played a card that reveals their true intentions, and it goes right back to the founding words of their founder. They become pawns for the forces of evil swirling all around them. And now, with the apostles' aid, we can see and identify them. But they who are without faith are blind to these things. And so the apostle goes on. They have forsaken the right way. They have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. Does everyone remember Balaam? There was a time when everyone knew about Balaam. He loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity by a dumbass. Speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. He rode on a donkey, or as the King James says, a dumbass. Dumb meaning not stupid, but unable to speak. Of course, a donkey can't speak. How many of our leaders do you suppose love the wages of unrighteousness more than the fulfilling of constitutional oaths? You know, one commentator, and I'll name him for you, J. Vernon McGee, he said, in Balaam's time, it was considered a miracle that a dumbass spoke. Today, it would be a miracle if we could get some dumbasses to keep quiet. <laughs> Balaam is mentioned three times in the closing books of the New Testament. What was the madness of the prophet? It was going against the people of God for money. Friends, that's madness. It drives you insane. By the first century, Balaam had become the patron saint of greed. That's why Peter spoke of him that way. He was popularly thought of as the man who took a bribe to curse God's people. There are several chapters of the book of Numbers that deal with the plight of Balaam. And I went back and read them last night, and I urge you to do so. It's one of the very um, informative and encouraging uh, sections of the Old Testament. In the end, the prophet did repent. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he blessed the people of God, though he was well paid to curse them. And so Balaam said... Um, or rather it was written in the book of Numbers, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord. To do good or bad of my own will. What the Lord says, that I must speak. Friends, that's where we have to stand. There's no other place to stand. And there's no price you can pay that's worth the, that's worth the price. 
Judas folded for a lot less, didn't he? 30 pieces of silver. Francis Schaeffer, you remember Francis Schaeffer, the great philosopher of our faith back in my day? He once wrote that the virtues of modern society have been reduced to a mere two principles, personal peace and affluence. If you'll give me my personal peace peace and my affluence, whatever else you do is your business. Christians can't be beholding to those two principles alone. We don't always get the personal peace that we so desire. Friends, nobody wants personal peace more than I do. Nobody wants to hang on to the things we have and have been given by God and blessed with more than I do. We've been greatly blessed here in America. I know many of you, all of you have been blessed. But personal peace and affluence isn't what it's all about. Sometimes we have to be stirred up. Sometimes we have to be awakened and this is the kind of, this is the, a place in Scripture where this apostle is reminding us of who we are. It's a spiritual battle, friends, but sometimes we have to state vociferously which side of the battle we're on. And he's reminding them to look at your enemy squarely and recognize who he is. I wonder how many of us would risk personal peace and affluence for the preservation of our religious liberties. He writes in verse 17, These are wells without water. Friends, I've told you many times, you ever argue with a theological liberal? I'm sure you have, right? Or even if you're a uh, reform believer and you're arguing with an Arminian, I always say there's a, there's, a, there's a good way to get through this, all right? What you do is let the other guy talk. Always let your theological or political opponent talk because his well is not deep. Trust me with this. Generally speaking, his well is not deep. And when he says, when he makes his points, you demolish his points by your, by your understanding of truth and reveal truth from the Word of God, and you demolish his points, he's got nothing left. He won't concede, however, because he can't. He has too much pride. So what will he do? He'll bring up the same arguments you just demolished. He doesn't go any further than that. That's the false teacher. Wells without water. Wells without water, carried about by a tempest, for whom is reserved, here it is, friends, the blackness of darkness forever. It's almost as if just being dumb and uninformed makes you evil. Wells without water. I cannot think of a better real-life illustration of dry wells than the unfulfilled promises of pundits and politicians. Remember what Jesus said to the thirsty woman at the well? He said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Friends, drink of the true water. Not the Kool-Aid, the water. We talked about the Kool-Aid in the last section. The literal Kool-Aid. Verse 18, he says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness. You know, preachers can fall into that. Preach great swelling words, but empty words. Friends, plainness of speech is the mock of the person who is qualified to speak on the subject. 
He says, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Friends, let me say it plainly. We don't lose our salvation, but we sometimes lose our way. And the apostle is calling us back. And these next few, few verses pertain to the dangers of taking our teaching from the wrong sources. Take care that the sources who promise us good things do not, on the other hand, require of us essential things. Boy, we've become a country that just wants to be promised good things and we don't even consider what we have to give up to get those. And I hope the churches don't fall into this line of thinking. I remember a time when we were a people who believed that it was a noble thing to treasure religious liberties over temporal or monetary liberties. Someone once said, give me liberty or give me death. I don't know who it was, do you? Someone once said that. Today it's, give me liberty or restrain me and give me safety. We always knew that liberty was a dangerous thing. It was a coveted thing. It was an elusive thing. We can lose it. I remember when I came into the faith 30 or so years ago, every evangelical I knew thought there would come a time when government would take away our free speech and our religious liberties. Some of you are as old as me. You remember those times. We were a countercultural church in those days, and now we can't become like the world fast enough. The church used to be a refuge from the world. Now it just wants to be a reflection of the world. No, but 30 years ago, everyone talked, you've you got to be careful, we'll lose our religious liberties. The government will take them away. And then when it finally came, we were easily lured into compliance by the belief that worship was not only a bad thing, it was a deadly thing. We're all going to die. We used to be a super spreader of the gospel. We're falling for the belief that we're a super spreader of disease and death. Friends, that's not the church. Promises of physical health and safety are not worth the price, my friends. And I am in no way contending that we should not take common sense steps to protect ourselves. Friends, I've told you many times, I'm a closet germaphobe. I wash my hands a lot and clean surfaces. Do other things. I'm simply saying that our leaders who hate religion and religious people do not have to take away our rights, friends, if we can be tricked into giving them away. Right? While these wells without water pretend to care for our physical being, who will take care of our spiritual being if not the pastors of the churches and the, and the people themselves? The more we're easily led, the more thirsty our souls become for the true water. Remember, it was the politicians that put up the walls that blocked the free production of cures and vaccines, Right? The regulations I'm talking about. The regulations stopped us. It was the pundits who preached against the real cures. And it was our president who tore down the walls that blocked them. You know, some walls need building, but some walls need to be torn down. And regulatory walls need to be torn down. And we see the efficacy of that. And so I wax political again. It was our president, friends, who really followed the science. The disease spread even when 
Even with lockdowns and curfews, we always knew that there was only one way to defeat it. And now, even when we found it, they rail against it because they rail against him. And I think I can safely say that as a fact of recorded history and not just my opinion. There's a fearful epitaph written on the headstones of those who are lured away by the prophets of emptiness. And so the apostle quotes from Jesus. It has happened to them, the ungodly, according to the true proverb, that a dog returns to his own vomit and the sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Friends, I know a little bit about dogs and a lot about sows. You're saying, how does he know about sows? Russ knows. The east side of Brockton had what was called the piggery when I was a kid. There was 2,000 pigs there. After Catholic Mass, my grandfather put all the kids in the car and we'd go down to the piggery and watch the pigs run around. I know what pigs do. They do what they are reputed to do. And I've had enough dogs to know what dogs do. It's a disgusting image, but it's the one the Lord Jesus used. Don't have it written on your headstone. The place we end up, friends, is the proof of where we were headed all along. Remember that. You don't be surprised when you're in the blackness of darkness forever if that's where you were headed. As a young man, I wallowed in the mire of my own sin, and I remember it vividly, and I have a lot of old friends to remind me. But I was washed, and I have better plans for my old age than I had in my young days. For the believer, there's no going back, friends. We can't go back. We have to go through. Those who endure to the end will be saved. How many times does he say that in Revelation? And so Paul wrote, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And such was I. But we were washed and we were sanctified, and we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. And so we thank Almighty God. O Father, in Jesus' name, let these words sink down into our ears, O Lord. Let them nourish us and assuage our thirst, O Lord, and let them rise up into a fountain of everlasting life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.